Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of September 26th, 2016. We are all about guests this week. First, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer will join us to discuss the baseball life of Miami Marlins pitcher Jose Fernandez, who died in a boating accident over the weekend. Then we'll ask MSNBC talk show host and Chicago Cubs fan Chris Hayes about the imminent World Series champions and whether he is, and other fans should be, morally conflicted about rooting for a team with with Trumpist connections. Finally, my Denver Broncos teammate Nate Jackson will be here to hump his new book, Fantasy Man, in which the former NFL touchdown machine, some machines do things twice and then stop, in which Nate ruminates on post-football anomie, opioid-induced constipation, cannabis, a concussion movie director he calls Guy Holly Douche, and as promised in the title, his fantasy football team, which is named Bunny Sleeve. Slate executive editor Josh Levine is off this week. Joining me from Slate headquarters in Brooklyn is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hi, Mike. Hello. You know, Arnold Palmer, of course, died on Sunday night. He was 87. The drink that bears his name, Mike, it's really a boring story. Well, it's practical. I was going to say, yes, a sad day for golf, a sadder day for beverages. Not since Barnabas Yuhu shuffled <laughs> off to his this eternal coil. What is the coil? Where is eternal? Anyway, tell me the story as you know it. It's like that's what he liked to drink. And he was in yes. a restaurant and someone said, what are you drinking? And he said, iced tea with lemonade. And yeah. she and she said to the waitress, I'll have an Arnold Palmer. Or I'll have a Palmer. Or I'll have what Palmer's having. And then it became yeah. the Arnold Palmer. And then, of course, he, he made he made millions of dollars from it. Thank God. My kids knew Arnold Palmer, the drink, had no idea he was a golfer, which is fine. Now, do your kids, your kid, your daughter, did she do the thing where they order, what kind of juice would you like? I'd like an orange juice and apple juice mix. Actually, what kind of juice do you have? I'll have them all mixed except grapefruit juice. Actually, I do is that. Is that a thing in your family? You do <laughs> that? I do that. I order cranberry juice. With yeah. orange juice mixed in. It's called 
the fatsis. The, the Stefan fatsis. Very Steph good. Fatsis, yeah. <laughs> uh, time for Whimsy Watch, our weekly look at whimsical moments in the non-whimsical NFL. Cam Newton wore a Martin Luther King Injustice Anywhere is a Threat to Justice Everywhere t-shirt in the pregame against against the Vikings. He also wore purple cleats with a paisley design to honor Prince. That was pretty whimsical. Mm-hmm. That was nice. Sure. Pre-game whimsy. Um, I liked Ezekiel Elliott of the Cowboys hurtling over a Bears defender and NBC immediately queued up tape of Elliott running the hurdles in high school. That's pretty good. That was awesome preparation. Kudos yeah, NBC. Good. Kudos NBC. You got Kudos anything? Fred, Fred Godelli. Yeah. Kudos. Yeah. 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 I uh, was watching a lot of New York teams give away the football as if the Jets had eight turnovers. You know, after the sixth, I I just thought of it as whimsical. (laughs) That's all I got. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members in honor of Slate's 20th anniversary, Josh, Mike, and I will listen to three classic hang up and listen after balls. I don't want to give away too much, but Del Curry with a little bitch. (laughs) <laughs> Our peers at the Culture, Political, and Double X Gab Fests also have spent some time digging through their archives. On Tuesday, oh. Slate will publish a special podcast that features oh, all four shows revisiting some of their favorite highlights to listen to all of this goodness and to get bonus segments on future episodes of Hang Up and Listen. Join Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. This month, we're offering a very special deal, 30% off an annual membership. Sign up and get a full year of Slate Plus for just $35 at slate.com slash hangupplus. Since a boat and three bodies were found overturned on a jetty off of Miami Beach early Sunday morning, the remembrances of Miami Marlins pitcher Jose Fernandez have been profuse and consistent. He was a gifted young man who survived a traumatic and dehumanizing journey to escape Cuba as a teenager. He was a prodigious talent whose early career was as good as any in history. And most of all, he was a huge personality who was helping to reshape the way we think about Major League Baseball by, of all things, having fun while playing the game. On ESPN on Sunday, Eduardo Perez, a former Marlins coach who was close with Fernandez, had a moving nine-minute conversation with Hannah Storm. Let's listen to a clip. Hannah, there are players and there are pitchers that when they're going to pitch that game day, they're quiet, they're focused, they don't say much. But when Jose is going to pitch, it's Jose Day. Everybody knows it. There's 30% more fan base in the games, at home, because Jose pitches that day. And he talks to everyone. He comes in full of life. He never eats before a start. And he goes out there and he, and he performs. And, and it's a show. It's the Jose show. And with that show, you were getting a great fastball, a great slider, a great curveball. And then the kid comes out. And that's the, the part that the Latinos really embraced in Miami, and the rest of the fan base also. It was, it was Jose Day. On The Ringer, Ben Lindbergh wrote that Fernandez's death is to baseball what Buddy Holly's was to rock and roll, what James Dean's was to movies, the sudden stripping away of a precocious performer who was already one of the best and probably had even better ahead of him. Ben joins us now. Hey there, Ben. Hey, how are you guys? Let's start by looking at Fernandez's short career, just 76 starts. 
on uh, TBS, Pedro Martinez called him probably one of the best arms that was ever going to play in the game. Our friend Randy Gazerli wrote on Twitter, in 147 years of pro baseball, I can't think of a life cut short that so clearly had so much future greatness ahead. On 538, Neil Payne looked at advanced metrics and concluded that Fernandez was either the best pitcher through his age 23 season of all time or close to it. Um, Ben, put into context how good Jose Fernandez was and where he was heading. Yeah, I mean, from the moment he appeared on a major league mound in 2013, coming, by the way, straight from high A, just skipping past double A and triple A entirely, you would expect some sort of adjustment period there, but there wasn't one. He was essentially from day one, the second best pitcher in baseball behind Clayton Kershaw, certainly on an inning per inning basis. There was just no one better at limiting hits and striking out batters. He has the highest career strikeout rate for any starter ever at this point. He got ground balls. He had just an overwhelming repertoire. He could throw in the mid to high 90s with just a devastating breaking balls and the best slider in baseball and a good changeup. He just had so many weapons. And you mentioned Pedro. If you look at just wins above replacement player per innings pitched, he is third all time behind Pedro and Clayton Kershaw. And of course, you know, if he had been able to complete his career the way that most players complete their careers, he might have declined at some point. He might have lost some speed off that fastball. He might have dropped down that leaderboard. But right now that we can say that, you know, looking back at the entire history of baseball, only a couple guys have ever been better in their time on the mound. And it's just a tragedy that his time was so short. He was more likely to register a strikeout this year than anyone except for Randy Johnson and Pedro in a couple right. of th- their seasons each. So think about that. These are th- the two best power pitchers. I put them above Clemens of the last 25 years, and he is right there with them, and he's 24, and he's never, you know, had a season. He's going to lead the league in strikeouts this year, which is great. But he never had a season where everything clicked perfectly, where he had the great team to get him the 20 wins, where, you know, he didn't have any injury concerns. And that was all ahead of him. Yeah, he only right. had two seasons, two full seasons in the big leagues. And yeah, he, of he, had, he had Tommy John surgery in 2014 and missed part of 2015 as well. Right. And we all kind of mourned his career prematurely when he had Tommy John surgery. And we all thought, why do we even watch this sport? What's the point if someone like Jose Fernandez can get hurt at any moment? Then, you know, why are we even getting attached to any player? And then, of course, he came back and was every bit as good as he had been before the injury, which was great to see. But yes, there was this sense that probably the best was ahead of him just because he, you know, had been used somewhat sparingly. He was young. He had the injury. We hadn't seen him have a, a really durable season yet. And so there was this sense that maybe as he got a little bit older and you take the leash off a little bit and just let him go. And at some point he would just have a, an otherworldly season where he would get to pair his effectiveness on a rate basis with, you know, a lot of innings and he would just be a, an overpowering force. And we never got to see that. We never got to see him make a postseason start because he was playing in Miami, you know, usually in front of fairly small crowds, although bigger when he was pitching than when anyone else was. So it's just such a shame if you had made a list of the the most indispensable big leaguers three days ago, Jose, Jose Fernandez might have been at the very top of that list. One of the statistics I think dovetails with uh, why people loved him so much with, with, with his personality. He was 29-2 pitching at home in Miami and 
that is the all-time best record by any pitcher in any ballpark, uh, which Tom Verducci noted in a nice remembrance uh, over over the weekend. Um, and and I think something there has to do with the fact that he loved the place and he loved that the Cuban community and the Latino community supported him so tremendously. Right. And you didn't even have to have that background to feel that attachment to him. If you did, of course, it, it only enhanced it. But I think everyone felt like they knew Jose Fernandez and they were Jose Fernandez's friend in a sense because he was so transparent that he loved playing baseball, that he was so great at it. And there are many superstars we never developed that kind of attachment to because, you know, we make these judgments about players based on body language because it's it's the only way that most people really relate to players is from afar watching on TV. And a lot of guys, particularly in baseball, are reserved and straight laced and they don't want to show a lot of emotion. And Jose Fernandez was not like that. He had so many moments that combined his talent, but also his just emotion and his personality. And it was so infectious and he was so brilliant at baseball, but no one could really begrudge him that brilliance because he just clearly seemed to be so appreciative of his gifts. He he looked like we all imagined that we would look if we were somehow able to live out this childhood dream and, and make it to the majors. We imagined that we would be happy all the time and smiling and beaming and just laughing. And, and he really was like that. Of course, he was an intense competitor, too. But he clearly had this appreciation of where he was and what he got to do, which may have had a lot to do with how hard it was for him to get there. He was a one-man rebuttal to the old, dour, I think stifling, unwritten rules type crowd of baseball. If a pitcher wants to glower, that's fine. But the idea that a pitcher has to glower to be better or glowering helps you strike out guys, he disproved that. The idea that you had to act pissed off and throw your mitt if you ever gave up a home run. You know, he laughed. Every, he knew that his game was a game and it was a challenge. And there were occasions where very few where the opposing batter would get the better of him. And it didn't shake the foundations of the legacy of baseball if he just laughed and had to give it up. I think, you know, a lot of his uh, fellow Latino players said he played like a Latino player. But often that is used as an excuse for whatever Puig does in not hustling or, I mean, God darn it, I love Cespedes, but he hits these uh, could it be home runs and then he stops at first base or doesn't run hard. I didn't see anything with uh, Fernandez that ever spoke of anything touching a lack of effort, yet he played with such a joy. And I think maybe players like him, fine, do you have to be as good as him to have a sweeping change? Let's hope not. But I think players like him are exactly the tonic for making baseball more relevant and palatable to a younger, less sour generation. Yeah, I agree. And that that makes this even harder to swallow is that, you know, he was on his way. He was really already on the way. He, he'd already achieved the, the status of just being the face of baseball or one of the faces of baseball. And for that face to be so expressive was, I think, a, a nice change of pace, a nice refreshing development. And, you know, for him to be so prominent and be so successful and also play the game that way. I think went a long way toward kind of normalizing that attitude and and he could back it up. You know, no one ever said he was overconfident. People described him as cocky at times, but they all said that the cockiness was justified because he was just so precocious and so skilled. And, you know, I think for the most part, 
it didn't even really give that many opponents the impression that he was showing them up. That can happen sometimes with players like Puig, you know, where they will flip a bat and the pitcher will take offense. And and Fernandez had one notable instance of that happening when he hit his first career home run and he took some time to admire it. And then the Braves, Brian McCann, of course, who at the time was kind of the, the police of uh, expressiveness on the baseball field, took exception. But for the most part, I think people just understood this guy was so good that you really couldn't fault him for reveling in how good he was. And, and it was clear that he wasn't doing it to put anyone else down. It was just that he had to let this out, that this personality poured through in, in every action. And in the, the one photo that's and among many photos, but the one that I love that is circulating uh, in in the wake of his death is of that incident of him hitting that first home run and the benches, everyone is sort of crowded around home plate, not fighting. And right. you see Fernandez grinning, <laughs> like his head popping up above the crowd and grinning at his third base coach. It's wonderful. You know, Jordan Ritter Khan wrote a terrific profile of Fernandez in 2013 for Grantland. And he talked to a Cuban defector baseball coach in Tampa um, who had worked with Fernandez growing up uh, when he was a teenager. And uh, Orlando Chinea is his name. And he told Khan, I've never known anybody who loves baseball as much as Jose. And the with all these remembrances, the one thing that really strikes me is that nothing feels disingenuous. It's not right. like we're praising posthumously someone that didn't deserve the praise. Um, and Khan wrote an, an obit uh, that was posted on Monday morning on The Ringer in which he says uh, that Jose Fernandez seemed deeply uninterested in his own myth. In part, it seems Fernandez was bored by the story of his own life because he was so deeply thrilled by living it. But we're all so attracted to that story, right? This kid that with his family tried to escape Cuba three times. At age 14, he was sent to prison after one of these escapes. At 15, they finally made it. Um, and during the journey through the Gulf of Mexico, his mom fell overboard and he dove into and, and rescued her. And then this just crazy harrowing journey through Mexico and finally to the United States. It creates this wonderful narrative, but at root, it allowed this personality to emerge and this kid's skills to be appreciated by millions of people. Right. I think, I mean, any background we, we would have liked Jose Fernandez if he had just grown up in this country and had the, the typical path to the majors. I think we all would have felt some attachment to him, but that he had to overcome such adversity to get there is incredible and that he was able to retain such joy in the game after this experience that could have scarred him deeply, one would think, having spent time in Cuban prisons with, you know, dangerous inmates and, and nearly He said died. there was a guy in there that had killed seven people. Exactly right. So to get to baseball and still kind of have this happy-go-lucky appearance on the mound was really remarkable, I think. And, and just on a purely performance basis, when you watched Jose Fernandez, you could tell exactly why he was so good at baseball. You know, a lot of the times I think if you watch Clayton Kershaw, for instance, if you watch one Clayton Kershaw start, I'm not sure that you would say, oh, this guy is one of the best pitchers ever. He's he's kind of deceptively effective. But Fernandez, you watch him and just every pitch darted and moved and was so fast and he had so many weapons that he could attack you with that he was just a, a must-see pitcher just purely based on his on-field performance if you were to choose you know there's this there's this app you can use online called the MLB TV Game Changer it's kind of a a 2 minute drill NFL red zone sort of equivalent for baseball and I wrote an article about that and and 
in the responses to that, you know, everyone said Jose Fernandez is number one on the list of people you just want your game to switch to when he is on the mound because you just couldn't take your eyes off him. And every Fernandez start was an event in the way that most pitcher starts are not. We get used to it. We get bored even by brilliance. You know, someone like Mike Trout, who's just great day in and day out, he won't even win an MVP award. You kind of have him as an afterthought because he's on a bad team. Fernandez was on some bad teams, but he was never an afterthought. He was just always electric. Yes. This was, of course, to be fair, in the pre-Rich Hill Renaissance era. (laughs) Right, yes. (laughs) Fernandez became the must-say. So I was thinking of this. Couple of um, superlatives for Fernandez. Greatest uh, Cuban player ever to play professional baseball in Miami. Certainly, right? Yeah, I think that's probably fair to say if you uh, set that many qualifiers. Well, I'm just saying that he's not the greatest Cuban of all time, but Miami, the hub of the Cuban community where it really matters to be Cuban. So in a way, kind of as important a guy, just to underline how important he was to his community. And then I was thinking of the great players who died while playing. Um, The recent-ish ones who come to mind are Thurman Munson and Roberto Clemente. Munson was a 32-year-old catcher. Um, his he had an MVP season, but his best seasons were behind him. Two Clemente World fame. Series. Yeah. He was he was the he was the symbol of my childhood fandom. Right. Thurman Munson's death was a major point for it, me. A horrible blow. And Roberto Clemente, still a great player, but you know, had already accumulated three thousand right. hits quite famously. I'm going right. through this list of other players who died. You know, um Josh Gibson died when he was playing Addy Joss, who is somehow I was looking up his statistics, I think he has the all time best whip he pitched in in the first few years of the 1900s. And Baseball Reference actually has a range factor on him that says he's like one or two. How do they get the range factor from a guy in 1902? But anyway, I do believe it can be said that of all the baseball players who died during their career, the one who is going to have the best season next year is Jose Fernandez. Yeah, or the best cumulative career after that point, I think you could definitely say. It's it's always jarring when... This happens when we lose a professional athlete who's young and in his prime. It's just shocking because, you know, this is what we use sports as a distraction from this sort of thing. And then suddenly it intrudes into our recreation. And I I think there are many examples of very promising prospects who were just embarking on a a great big league career. Guys like Nick Adenhard and Oscar Tavares just in the past few years. And there are guys, as you mentioned, kind of at the tail end of great careers, Clemente or Gehrig or, you know, there are many examples of that. I don't know if there is an example of someone who was so young and so elite already and so promising for the future. I I don't think there is a precedent. Ben Lindbergh is a staff writer for The Ringer and the co-author with Sam Miller of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Sorry about the circumstances, but always good to talk to you. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Chicago Cubs have won the National League Central Division. Then, if a black cat and a billy goat and a guy wearing a Kelly green turtleneck and a Walkman, doesn't have to be the actual Steve Bartman, are sacrificed in a tavern owned by a Greek immigrant and clouds over Wrigley Field spell out Let's Play 2 
and the ghost of Harry Carey emerges over the loop mumbling, take me out to the ball game, while Bill Murray drops a baseball into Mordecai Brown's mouth from the top of the Willis Tower, and Ivy is smoked by all of the bleacher bums simultaneously. Then and only then will the Cubs win the World Series. In other words, get ready for a month or more of bullshit stories about curses and destiny, because with six days left in the regular season, the Chicago Cubs are the best team in baseball. Which brings us to our next guest. Ladies and gentlemen, he's a journalist, author, and the oh, Emmy-winning television host of MSNBC's All In with Chris Hayes. Please welcome former Chicago resident and lifelong Cubs fan, Chris Hayes. <laughs> that was Chris Hayes throwing out the first pitch at Wrigley Field, joining such luminaries as Ben Higgins from The Bachelor, skateboarder Chaz Ortiz, the rock band Chevelle, the WWE's Ric Flair and Charlotte, the guy who played Freddie Rumson on Mad Men, Scott Simon, Bears kicker Robbie Gold, since cut, astronaut Steve Bowen, Chef Stephanie Izzard, Joey Belladonna of Anthrax, the list goes on, all of whom have thrown out the first pitch at the friendly confines this season. Chris Hayes, welcome to Hang Up and Listen. What was it like to toss one, let's be honest, well outside of the strike zone at Wrigley? Uh, oh, thanks. Thanks for that detail. It did not bounce, which is the key in, in my in my preparation for the moment. I mean, the thing about throwing out a first pitch is, like, obviously it's not a physically difficult task. It's just mentally you don't want to get too far in your head. Like, you know, I could I could sink a free throw. I probably could hit about seven or out of ten. But if I was, like, in front of, you know, 20,000 people, would I hit a free throw? So I kept telling myself, you don't worry about velocity and just go high and don't bounce it. That was, mm-hmm. that was the key to get out of there uh, alive. But it was... I gotta say it was um, definitely like top ten life moments. Um, you know, to be on Major League Field, it was like a perfectly blue September day. This indigo sky at twilight, and the and the bright lights, and the perfect kind of Technicolor green grass where every blade is the same height, and the the white of the chalk and the white of the uniforms. And I just was overwhelmed by how beautiful and perfect the whole scene was like the electricity of standing on a major league baseball field in Wrigley on the day that they could possibly clinch. So the, the stands were already pretty full about a half hour before game time. Totally incredible. So do you take back all the times you made fun of George Bush for building his 2004 presidential convention <laughs> around throwing out a first pitch? Was, successfully? You know, that, I, I, that was one of the many pitches I studied in my preparation and it was a damn good pitch. You will give him that now. I, you know, uh, there's a lot of things on the other side of the ledger of the Bush presidency, but that was a, <laughs> right. that was a good pitch. Chris is like, I wouldn't have gotten us involved in a war of choice, but yeah, if you want to give him the pitch <laughs> thing, fine. Yes. He did throw a strike, yes. He threw a strike, yes. The first time I saw the Cubs live in singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game was a guy they had to do a little more explanation for than you, because he wasn't that known at the time, Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly wow. without a, Without a Chicago connection, I don't think. So wow. talk about, I mean, that was, that I think, it doesn't get cited in this ongoing curse, but I think it must. It might be part of it. All right, let's, let's get to the, to, the, to the playoffs here. Fangraphs says the Cubs' chances of winning the World Series are 18%. Baseball prospectus, 27%. Um, the, you know, there must be, the anxiety level as a fan must be relatively high for you. Um, the players, though, not so much. And that, that's the disconnect that always, you know, that, that, that fascinates. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny, actually. I would say 
Here's what I would say. There's a great line. There's two great uh, Cubs magazine features. There's David Axelrod in The New Yorker, and there's uh, Wright Thompson in ESPN magazine, both sort of centered on Theo. And I think it was Theo made a point that, look, you know, to get this, to, to, to break the curse, right, to get the Cubs in the World Series and win a World Series, the first step is you have to create a good winning team that is a winning team year in, year out, because we all know, um, you know, we all know the playoffs are a crapshoot in baseball. Um, and, you know, that, that, that line from Billy Bean, that famous line, like, my stuff doesn't work in the playoffs. Like, shit, yes, he said we, shit. Shit, yeah, my shit. I, I forget I'm not on, yeah, <laughs> on television. television. I can care yeah. the podcast. I have to say, I feel as a fan, and I feel like Cubs Nation in this respect, I don't feel that kind of like, oh, God, if it doesn't work this time, we're doomed, which was the feeling that I had in other seasons, even really good seasons. I think 2009, I think they had the best record in the NL. Um, I think I got swept by the Rockies in three games, if I'm not mistaken. And I think, you know, those years, it just sort of felt like, oh, we have these big contracts and these people, I don't know if they're going to stick around. You know, the whole CEO project of, of, of creating this farm system, bringing up all these young players, you know, you, you have this feeling like, okay, we could, they're building a team that is going to be a competitive for the playoffs team year in, year out for a, a significant period of time, and you hope you get lucky one of those years. Now, obviously, this year, like, you want them to win the World Series, but I got to say that I don't even, as a fan, feel this sort of intense, like, this is our shot feeling that I felt other years you know, in the, my 37 years as a Cubs fan, when they got in there and you felt like, okay, this is it. And, and you can sort of, it's funny, I feel like around the team, you can feel that lack of pressure. And, you know, people give a lot of credit to that, to Madden, which I think is true, like keeping everyone loose. I think the fact that it's so many young players who don't have any association with the team as this, like, cursed entity, um, that it just doesn't, it doesn't feel that way to me right now. And I mean, you know, maybe I'll feel differently, but but that's, that that's sort of the general feeling I have going into playoffs. Like we'll see what happens. It's a crapshoot, and they've got a really good young team. And you know, it's real. I mean, my big thing is I forgot. It's so much fun. I think the best experience in sports is rooting for a really good baseball team because, like, they've got a game every day. And when you've got a team that's going to win a hundred games like the Cubs, like you know, the, the, the lion's share of those days are good days. And you're in a lot of games. You you have you know you you you're, you're not bailing after the third inning when they're down ten two because the starting pitching is terrible. And and the joy of being able to follow a season pitch by pitch when you've got a really good team that in and of itself just those hundred sixty two games are such a delight that I feel almost lucky to be able to bank that. Yeah, I think it's a the crapshoot analogy is good because you know if even if it is craps, you want your point to be six or eight and not ten because even if the point is six or eight, you probably won't hit it. But if it keeps being that after a number of years, you have a chance to get exactly. there. Right, that's right, exactly. Yeah, right. And the and you Cubs. Also, and you, I mean, the yeah. other thing is, you know, when you go through a season where you sort of, you know, this is the most invested in a baseball season I've been since for a while, and I, I probably, you know, I. I, I probably listen, listen to about eighty percent of the pitches thrown in this in this season. I mean, I'm, I'm you know I've got it on all the time. They play a lot of day games. I um, as soon as I get out of work and they're playing a night game, I put it on the my, the MLB app on my phone on the on the way home. And you know, you also are cognizant they went through a stretch where they looked terrible in right before the All Star break. That you know, you in a three game series, you have two bad pitching outings 
or the bats go quiet. You know, like yeah. it's you know, it's just that that can happen. You know, just that's the way the game works. Yeah, but you have to take solace in the fact that look, they're really good. They're first in baseball in walks, second in on base percentage, third in OPS. Their pitching is crazy. First yeah. in WHIP, lowest opponent's batting average by a mile. Team ERA is three eleven. The next best is the Nationals at three forty four. Was on Saturday when I looked up these numbers. Jake Arrieta is eighteen and seven with a two eighty five ERA. He's the third best pitcher on the team right now. I mean, they're good. They're really good. And one thing that that you didn't note there that actually I would say in some ways has been the most enjoyable part of the season to me, and and Madden talks about this a lot, is their defense. Defense, right. Their defense is, if you look at percentage of batted balls, they get it out. They're, they're, they're head and shoulders above anyone else in the league. Yeah, their defensive and, stats are way ahead also, yeah. Yeah, they're crazy. And, and in fact, when you, I mean, the one thing about, there's two things about defense, right? One is that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it tends not to sort of slump and fluctuate in the same way. And two is just like watching them play defensively itself is a joy. I mean, there's, there are 20 plays that Javier Baez has made this year. They're almost like basketball highlights, you know, like that there's this sort of level of sheer athleticism defensively. And I think that actually has been part of, I mean, the pitchers all say this, you know, like you're not trying to be too cute. You don't feel like you need a strikeout. You feel like you can put the ball in play and people behind you are going to, you know, are going to get your back. And I think that's, that's actually been a part of what, if you look at the staff, you know, the, the staff as a whole have been great, and they, they're a great group of pitchers, but they have this incredible defense behind them as well. Well, I got the stat on this, and uh, I'll credit Fangraphs. By, uh, they called it the most incredible stat of the baseball season, more incredible than the Rangers' record in one-run games or the fact that Caleb Joseph doesn't have a uh, RBI. And it's three standard deviations from the norm. It's their batted average and balls in play against their BABIP. It's 251. The next highest team is 284, a difference of 33 points. Just to put that in perspective, the difference between second place and 28th place is also 33. Points. And exact yeah. yeah. And exactly what you said. So Babip is a little luck dependent, but it's not, especially with this defense. So a couple things, they can rely on it. It's replicable from season to season. And it turns players like John Lester, who's a fine player and a, a good pitcher, good pitcher, into a bona fide Cy Young contender with this great defense behind him. And I guess the cognoscenti knows this, but when you price it into when it becomes the DNA of the team, that's why I go back to what you said, even if it's not their year, this should be their era. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, barring, you know, obviously anything can happen. And I remember when we were all set up in 2003 with, with Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor's, these two amazing young arms and, you know, 2003 didn't work out, but we'd be back and, you know, that, that didn't work out. So, you know, I don't want to jinx anything, obviously, but, but yeah, the, 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 the level of talent that is put on the field and you see it, you know, you really see it, you see it in the field, just like the athleticism and, um, the arms on a lot of these these guys, and it, it's really palpable what a good team they are. It's it's, it's you know I, I don't want to make the obviously the, in fact the Warriors comparison is funny right because obviously we we know how that turned out in the end, but yeah. it has felt I watched a ton of Warriors basketball during the regular season because I'm a huge basketball fan and a lot of those games are on late and I have the you know the league pass for the NBA so I you know and they're so much fun to watch and. The Cubs have been a little bit like that of baseball this year. Like they have been an incredibly fun team to watch just because of how much talent is on the field. But they're not reinventing the game and they're not doing things with spaces and one key injury won't fell them like obviously Curry's did. Anyway, yeah, I think they're right, in, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. All right, before you go, Chris, we do have to turn the conversation to the political part of the Cubs, which is ownership. Uh, Joe Ricketts, not on the board of the team, the uh, founder of TD Ameritrade, staunch Republican, just announced that he plans to donate at least a million dollars to help Donald Trump win the presidency. Um, he was a big backer of uh, of Scott Walker, right? Yeah. So, the, so yeah. should yeah. Cubs fans be conflicted about the family or can we separate these two things? I, I don't, I have to say, I, it's not, there are things I feel conflicted about. That's not really one of them. I mean, I, it's sort of a bummer if you have the politics I have. Um, and also the Ricketts folks have made a little bit of an about face because they were, they were kind of in the never Trump camp. And this feels like something you're seeing more broadly, which is this sort of falling into line that's happened, which I think accounts for a lot of what is happening in the race in terms of it being so tight. 90% of Republicans in poll after poll are now saying they'll, they'll vote for Donald Trump. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, if you have my politics, that's a bummer. But it's also the case that, like, there are so, like, I consume this good, and there are so many goods that I consume that are produced by, um, you know, companies or people that I I don't really like politically. Um, I, I have to say, like, honestly, I am much, much more conflicted about watching NFL football, um, like, in a, in a visceral way almost. So this year it's gotten to the point where, it's not. It's no longer this argument. It's. I, I used to feel to me the way I felt about eating meat, which is like, I, I. It was hard for me to muster an argument for why I should keep eating meat, but I just like to eat meat, so I kept eating meat, and I just sort of put it aside. I used to feel that way about football, and football this year is feeling like actually watching the game is making me uncomfortable, particularly that that first uh, Panthers game where Cam Newton was just getting knocked around, mm-hmm. and I don't. I don't. I just don't feel that way about the Cubs now. It's possible I just am a big enough Cubs fan that it's like, I'm just too, too excited about this team to honestly reckon, you know, reckon with what, you know, what the implications are, but it's, it's, it's not keeping me up at night. So we've got it. NFL concussions greater than Ricketts family, greater than eating meat. Yes, exactly. Is that about right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. But I, but I would point out that no cow gets a minimum salary of $450,000 a year. (laughs) That's the NFL analogy. And I think you could make the case that of all the goods you consume, yes, if you follow them up the chain, I'm sure there's some Carlisle company involvement or someone doing that something good. But this is, you know, every dollar that goes to the Cubs, a small portion of it does go to elect the man that, forget your politics, I mean, there's a a once-in-a-lifetime potential catastrophe. That said... Yeah, I generally agree that what would be the moral stance to take a centuries plus worth of potential pleasure and throw it out the door based on an abstraction? And I'd further say that the Cubs might be owned by the Ricketts now, but they are a trust. You know, they're a public trust in ways that other goods we consume aren't. So it would be, I don't know, I wouldn't even... I don't know that I'd even have respect for someone who said, that's it, the Ricketts, the Ricketts own yeah. the Cubs, I can't support the, Trump. The other, I would the think other, that the they other were thing that makes daft. It more complicated. The other thing that makes it more complicated, frankly, is that, and again, like Joe Ricketts is not the person running the team, right? So it's, it's his son, Tom, um, and, their, and the sort of sibling cohort, one of whom, uh, their sister, is, is apparently reportedly a Democrat. Um, the, you know, the other thing that makes it, makes you feel conflicted is that they've done a pretty great job. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, yeah, the, the, right. the difference between the Tribune running that team where it was like, look, we're going to, we got this cable deal and we're going to pack the stands for every home game in Wrigley, no matter how good they are. And like, maybe we'll sign some big free agents and once in a while make a run to like what they, this, this management structure has done with this team. I mean, you gotta, you gotta sort of tip your cap and, and, uh, and on the, on the, t- on the topic of politics, I've been saying for, you know, for a while now that at this point, 
I would vote for Theo Epstein for president tomorrow, not knowing a thing about the guy's politics. <laughs> He's like, he, he needs to be entrusted with larger and larger responsibilities based on his record so far. <laughs> By the way, that Ricketts daughter, is that Ivanka Ricketts, the Democrat? <laughs> Chris Hayes is the host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. I'd give out his Twitter handle, but he's already got 679,000 followers. Chris, <laughs> we can figure it out. <laughs> Chris, thank you for joining well, us. Thank you. After, after throwing out the first pitch at Wrigley, this too, appearing on Hang Up and Listen, is a, is a bucket list item. So thanks for having me on. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Early in his new book, Nate Jackson is asked by a presumably imaginary person, what do you do in there all day? I'm a writer, Nate replies. What do you think I do? I masturbate and smoke pot. Nate spent six years as a special teamer and occasional pass catcher with the Denver Broncos, one of them as a role player in my book, A Few Seconds of Panic. I'm proud to say that our locker room bromance helped turn Nate into a writer. His first book, Slow Getting Up, was a memoir of life as a scrub in the NFL. Now comes Fantasy Man, a diary of life as a scrub out of the NFL. Nate takes us on a tour of his broken body, the medical marijuana industry, and the fantasy football team he manages with the help of an assistant named Tracy and a trap door through which he drops his buddy Jay Cutler and other deplorables into a pen of feral dogs. Fantasy Man is very funny. It's written with pace and style. There are takes. The conceit is pretty straightforward. The dog bites man of a real player doing fantasy, which strips players of their humanity and commoditizes their work even more than the dickhead coaches who suck their bodies dry and pillage their souls. So let's start there, Nate. Fantasy is fantasy for multiple reasons, not the least of which is that it does the seemingly impossible distance fans even further from the ugly reality of football. Yeah, but they, I don't think they'll agree with you. I think they think they're getting closer to it. They think they're getting more understanding of it, and they think they're understanding the game more. But, yeah, you're right. It just disconnects people even more. That was the goal in the book. Although I, I have I have to take you to task with the way you just explained my first book, a scrub in the NFL and a scrub after the NFL. Man, I, I love it. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's inaccurate because after a scrub, you feel clean. And after I read your book, I did not. Was <laughs> that right? Did you read it? <laughs> yeah, I read. I read uh, the first book. It's uh, yeah, full of hard hits and head trauma. As far as this one, I think um, the obvious interesting point is the disconnect between the fantasy and the reality. But I do think fantasy football is disconnected with reality, but in a way that is also a thir really a third type of reality. In some ways, fantasy football is kind of closer to the reality that uh, the official league people wants to prop up as opposed to what it really means to play football. Well, yeah, they want it to be a superstar league. They want it to be about Pro Bowls and Hall of Fames and touchdowns and sports center highlights and they follow the one guy who's holding the ball and measure his numbers and then you know uh, rate him according to those numbers but there are 53 guys on every team 53 guys are responsible for moving that ball there's so many uh, different things that go into it uh so much nuance that we get that gets lost and people don't even seem interested in understanding and it really does 
objectify these guys. It actually makes their health records even more public fodder than it used to be. I mean, you have to monitor the health and injuries of these human beings in order to succeed at this game. And so it creates a real disconnect from the actual trail of blood that follows these guys off the field. That's why I did that trapdoor technique. It's like, you know, off with his head. You're of no use to me anymore. I only have 16 slots on my team, and you're not good enough anymore, so go away. These guys get attacked on social media a lot for it, too. All right, let's, uh, that's a good uh, segue to what I want to do here. Let's do a little Terry Gross thing now where I, I'm, I'm Terry Gross. I uh, ask you to read a passage from the book, and you just happen to have the book open to that page. Uh, I want you to read, right. if you could, Nate, the passage where um, you call Peyton Manning into your office. Peyton is on your team, Bunny Sleeve, and you decide to cut <laughs> Peyton from your, your fantasy team. All right, here we go. <clears throat> so this is what these chairs feel like. He leans back. I always wondered, hmm, more comfortable than I'd have thought. And you can barely tell it's a trap door. Where's the button? Under your desk? It's obvious you put a lot of work into it. That speaks to your integrity, Coach. I've always respected the way you handle things. Thank you for that. You know, ever since I was a kid, it's weird. This is the moment I've been dreaming of. This moment. Not the records, not the touchdowns, not the Pro Bowls not the Super Bowls, but this moment right here. He looks down at the armrests, then up at the ceiling, then back in my eyes. The moment some never was coach tells me that I'm not good enough anymore. He used to keep me up at night, coach. He used to choke me. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think. All I could do was keep throwing, keep practicing, keep studying, keep moving. Otherwise, I'd have had a nervous breakdown. It was the only thing that mattered to me. The end. I thought it would break me, coach. And you know what? I feel fine. I feel great. I feel, I don't know, I feel like someone else. I feel lighter. I swear to you, when Tracy just called me in, something lifted off of me, coach. All my aches and pains, they just fucking vanished. Two minutes ago. Gone. It's like I've been living in somebody else's body for my whole life, coach. And now it's time for me to let go. And I can say that honestly. I have no fear. Now press it, he said. I'm ready. Go on. Press the button. So you press the button. Eventually the door opens. But unlike with other players, the dogs don't devour Peyton. They wag their tails and lick his face. Only Peyton gets what others don't. That leaving the NFL is kind of a mercy. Or at least that's what I took away from that scene. Um, Jay Cutler, by contrast, does not manage it as well. <laughs> I, I guess that was just me trying to, to cut Peyton a little slack in his last year when everyone was attacking him. It was interesting to watch the wisdom of the uh, industry unfold on the Broncos last year because it's always been you need a franchise quarterback, he needs to put up X amount of yards and X amount of touchdowns every game for you to have a chance to win. And uh, that wasn't the case with the Broncos. They found a way to be the best football team on planet Earth with a quarterback who everyone said sucked at football. And so I just saw him getting killed so bad in the media all year that I felt like, you know, there was something better waiting for him on the other side when he was finally done being ripped apart by the little experts. I find something about fantasy football, more so about rotisserie baseball or if they call it fantasy baseball, I actually find it um, intellectual and 
a, a little bit less dehumanizing than um, a, a lot of the way the game is presented to us, certainly as it used to be with NFL films and the big hits. And I think that if, you know, you have the proper mindset to understand that there is a reason why Julio Jones is getting open or if Adrian Peterson is this great running back who's making the holes for him or even who's thinking of the schemes um, or even if you watch Peyton Manning, maybe not last year, but two or three years before when he was setting these records, and you know he doesn't have the physical attributes, but he's kind of outthinking the game. I don't know. There's to me, there's a way to experience fantasy that, or which is just a statistical appreciation of the football players who generate the statistics. There's a way to appreciate that and have it actually heighten the game and make it a little more uh, intellectual than perhaps. John Gruden would have us experience. You know, I'm going to jump in here and say I agree with that. And the 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 further point here, Mike, is that I think I would appreciate it even more. And I play fantasy. I would appreciate it more if I felt like the players were being compensated for this 10, 11, whatever it is, billion dollar industry that has has um, emerged from 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 statistics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, it's their face. It's their name. Like I said, it's their body, their injury reports. Their statistics, football was always trumpeted as this team sport where it's not about me, it's about the guy next to me, it's not about the name on my back, it's about the logo on my helmet. You know, coaches are always preaching this stuff, and the NFL always co-opted that stuff until it suits them not to, and they see a money-making opportunity to flip it on its head and endorse the individual, the performance of the individual, the statistics of the individual. And the way that fantasy works oftentimes is, Best-performing fantasy players are on bad teams that are lopsided, and that's why their numbers are astronomical like that, because another part of their game is suffering, and so we don't really understand that, and we think that you know because this guy had 200 yards rushing, he's the best in the world. Well, oftentimes that means that his team is, is uh, anemic in other ways and can't throw the ball down the field, or if a running back catches seven passes, you're really happy about that, but that means that they can't throw the ball down the field and they're having a, lot, a hard time. And so fantasy uh, success does not equal on-the-field football success, but it's seeping into the way that fans look at the game. You know, well, I think the, the, the great thing about the, this book, Nate, is that you took it not just as an opportunity to talk about fantasy and your relationship with football, but to have these takes, to, to, to bring out the things that you witnessed as a player and give us sort of a, a better appreciation for what the NFL does wrong and what you feel like could be better. And there are two things that really struck me that I liked. One was your advocacy for the NFL understanding that they have the ability to help players in their post careers. As you say, everything is right in the building. I hadn't even considered this marketing PR. You write medicine, management, nonprofit, computer engineering, business, Anything a player might want to do after football, he could do inside the NFL. Yeah, and we we don't really think of it like that because we try to isolate these players in their all-football world where it's just a football bubble and no distractions get in. You hear the word distractions a lot. Distractions really means life. And people who make a, a living out of covering football or coaching football don't want life to seep into that because it makes, I, I don't know, it changes the way they view it and have to cover it. But for the players themselves, life is what they have to prepare for, and life is what they need to be ready for, and they don't speak the language of life. You know, It's language skills that football players lack the most when they go out into the real world. They don't know how to articulate themselves or ask uh, the right questions or speak up 
or be creative because you've been in those uh, meeting rooms, Stefan, you mm-hmm. know, there's 53 guys sitting completely silent while the coach leads the meeting for four hours every day and never consults these guys who are, by the way, the best in the world at what they do. Their instincts are more refined than the coach's instincts or else the coaches would be playing. But the football players are, act, are, are treated as if their bodies are the only thing that are, are good. When I believe they have these minds, these athletic, artistic minds, they're just kind of waiting for a little more tutelage to help them out in other ways. And you're right. You know, there's all those different departments in the facility right on the other side of the locker room wall. And I think that if they were allowed to go in there maybe once, twice a week, pick one of these departments for an hour a day, twice a week, it would introduce them to the language of the world that they don't know how to speak. Yeah, that would that would be a great idea. I could see in 10 years the best clubs doing it, and then as soon as one of them finishes 7-9, seven seven eliminating that program. But, um, <laughs> right, that's the thing. It's all about winning. It's just like, yeah. you don't, if you try something new and you lose, then it's like you'll never try it again. Yeah, and, and, and that was the reason why, no matter what it was, you know? Oh, we stocked the library with uh, a work of uh, <laughs> literary fiction. That must be, yeah, the library. Here. I wanted to I want to ask you a couple of statistics based questions. The first is this. This isn't about fantasy, but there are some sites and some services that if you're a real football geek, you could subscribe to. Some of them are available and they give grades for all the players, right? And not just yards. So they'll tell you that in the uh, Jets uh Chiefs game, the top defensive grades last week were the inside linebacker Derek Johnson at a 95-7 and the cornerback Marcus Peters. Ha- do the players look at these public available grades are those more towards the good than towards the bad of reducing to statistics you know is there any thought paid to those non-fantasy grades but affixing a number to a performance well i think individually like the coaches do that um they'll grade your performance each play you'll have a grade on it um your assignment and your execution at least that's how it used to be in denver so each each play had a two-point grading scale but uh i don't see the players looking um, outside of that, like on any neutral website to find any of that. And also those kind of statistics can be misleading also because, you know, you say the inside linebackers had a great day. Well, why did they have a great day? Because the other guys around them were funneling everything in there and taking care of all their stuff that allowed them to have that great day. So all these statistics are dependent on the other moving parts. And so saying it, you know, it had um, everything to do with the inside linebacker play, I think is misleading. And those guys, you know, they don't they don't really click around um, on that kind of stuff. I'm pretty sure they don't. When it comes to fantasy, here are the moments where I kind of catch myself and saying, you know, real people involved. One is everything having to do with running backs. And when they talk about, oh, there are no good running backs and, oh, my God, we've, ru- we've moved to running back by committee. There are no three down <laughs> backs anymore. And you can't get a- after two years. These guys are done. It's just compl- like the fantasy player complaining. And what they're really saying is. We've chewed up these humans and used them too fast for my amusement. And another part is the overall dealing with injuries where it just becomes like a pain in the ass to you. And why can't they tell me if Alshon Jeffrey is going to go? Because the guy's in pain. And this year there's a big thing going on with Sammy Watkins where they say there's no structural damage to his foot. It's just a pain threshold thing. And he wasn't good the first two games and they held him out game three. And people are very frustrated by that human being, human being involved here that's what's going on yeah our entertainment is more important than his health that's what it's come down to and we need access to his medical files adam schefter tweeted out a hospital report he took a photo of it and tweeted it out of jason pierre paul's finger 
incident. He's getting sued for it. But I think that there needs to be a pushback from the players' union regarding all this uh, information available to people on injuries. Pushback against Vegas betting lines. Who says that Vegas can't create accurate betting lines without an injuries uh, report? They haven't tried it before. Let them try it, you know? I just think that the, the NFLPA acquiesces too much to the demands of the industry when money is involved. They don't fight for the soul of the player. They don't fight for his life. They're worried about money, and uh, I don't think it's good for the game at all. Nate Jackson's new book is Fantasy Man, a former NFL player's descent into the brutality of fantasy football. Buy it now. It is terrific. Good luck to Bunny Sleeve this season. Did you change the name or is it still called Bunny Sleeve? We're just the sleeve right now. You're down to just the sleeve. You drop the bunny. You drop the bunny. But I might be, I mean, I always love that bunny. I mean, the bunny's with me forever. (laughs) All right, Nate. Thanks, man. Thank you, guys. And now it is time for After Balls. Those 1908 Chicago Cubs, Mike, last time they yeah. won the World Series. Great roster. Mordecai, three-finger Brown. Tinkers, Evers, and Chance. Orville overall, whom we mentioned, I think, yes, a couple weeks ago. Of course. Heine Zimmerman, Solly Hoffman, Kid Durbin, and Frank Schulte. Frank Schulte had the awesome nickname Wildfire. According to his bio on Sabre.org, written by uh, Scott Turner, Wildfire Schulte, quote, was known to comb the streets looking for hairpins. He claimed that they predicted his success in the batter's box. The bigger the hairpin, the greater the success Schulte would achieve. Hairpins. Wildfire Schulte hit in 13 straight World Series games for the Cubs, tied for fourth all time with Derek Jeter. Heard of him. <laughs> Hadn't heard of wild, Wildfire Schulte, though, had you? No, no. No. Mike, what's your Wildfire Schulte? Well, I was going through the list of uh, players who've died young, and there are, of course, so many tragic stories. And yet, when you get to be 100, 110 years before the current, and you could say to yourself, they probably would have passed away anyway, there are some interesting little tidbits. I, don't, I do not wish to uh, dwell on the macabre. But um, I was speaking during the interview of Addy Joss. Some great statistics led the league in not giving up home runs. Not that hard when league leaders in home runs were nine. But Addy Joss was nicknamed the human hairpin. And he played for the team that I always was told was the Naps, named for Nap Napoleon Lajoui. But their official name was the Cleveland Broncos a predecessor to the Cleveland Indians. But what I did not know about the Cleveland Broncos was that Broncos was spelled with an H, B-R-O-N-C-H-O-S. So what is that? Something having to do with bronchitis? No, just an alt spelling of Broncos before it got standardized. A couple other interesting people who died, or at least the circumstances of their death, were fairly... Let's just go with the uh, Hall of Famers. Here are the Hall of Famers who died while playing. Clemente. uh, Thurman Munson was not a Hall of Famer. Ed Delahanty, who played until the age of 35, died in 1903. Do you know the cause of death? I have read this story, yes. Yes. I will give you a hint. Yeah, the uh, the, it was it's how the Three Stooges would not want to go. He was swept over Niagara, Niagara Falls. Falls. Yeah. Ed Delahanty swept over Niagara Falls. Addie Joss is a Hall of Famer who died while playing. Josh Gibson is a Hall of Famer who died while playing. And the last Hall of Famer who died while playing is Ross Youngs. 
Ross Young's, uh, his Wikipedia page said he was known for his defense and hitting, which is good. Those are two really important parts of the game, aren't they? But it seems that his hitting might have been better than his defense. The uh, interesting things I found out about Ross Young's actual name, Ross Young's played as Ross Young. Don't know why you'd have to drop the S. Maybe it's a Broncos H situation. Known for his hitting and defense, he never had a defensive year where his defensive war score was in the positive territory. So by these metrics, and again, I don't know how you calculate the range factor for a player who played from 1917 to 1926, but he never had a defensive season where he didn't hurt his team as compared to the regular player. But He was quite a good hitter. He hit a lifetime average of 322 when that wasn't nothing. And he was elected to the Hall of Fame, although it was said not without controversy. There were a lot of veterans in the Hall of Fame who just wanted to honor their late friend. Ross Young's died of Bright's disease, which I had also never heard of. Now it would just be called chronic nephritis. All right. Two things. One, Addie Joss was the human hairpin. And I just read about Wildfire Schulte. Combing yes. the streets looking for hairpins. We got a hairpin. We pin. did not. We did not arrange that. No, we no. could go back and call our afterballs our hairpins, but yeah, no, too late now. And Ed Delahanty, I just looked up the, the the whole story. I'm reading from Wikipedia. He was apparently kicked off a train by the train's conductor for being drunk and disorderly. The conductor said Delahanty was brandishing a straight razor and threatening passengers after he consumed five whiskeys. After being kicked off the train, Delahanty started his way across the International Bridge connecting Buffalo, New York with Fort Erie and fell or jumped off the bridge. Huh. Yikes. Good. What's your wildfire, Schulte, Stefan? Well, the big news in American men's soccer is a player who just celebrated his 18th birthday at a Justin Bieber concert, who is getting serious minutes with Borussia Dortmund in the Bundesliga, and who got his first start for the U.S. men's national team against Trinidad and Tobago in a World Cup qualifier this month. Who am I talking about? Well, Fox Sports announcers John Strong and Stuart Holden have the call. strength from him just holding him off the defender Bobby Wood almost gets it and Pulisic oh woof both posts all right so his first name is Christian his last name is Pulisic according to John Strong or is it Pulisic as Stuart Holden preferred Strong and Holden stuck to their personal pronunciations all game long you got to admire their conviction even if you have to wonder whether a producer was bothering to listen to them maybe another Fox soccer talker can settle this maybe one with a trustworthy European accent every Borussia Dortmund match for the rest of the way represents another opportunity for Christian Pulisic the 17 year old American was an unused substitute in Stuttgart but earned praise from his manager after a round 19 league win over Ingolstadt All right, so Pulisic, that sounds more Croatian, Mike. You got the ch in the end there. And the Hershey, Pennsylvanian has a Croatian passport. I think, though, we need an American to confirm the ch. This is Christian Pulisic. That name sounds vaguely familiar, right? Well, get used to hearing it. Pulisic is the American teenager who is starting to make a name for himself in the Bundesliga. All right, so Pulisic then. Uh, You know what? The Germans are seeing him all the time. Germans are very precise. The Germans must know how to say this. Das ist dieser Junge, dieser Christian Pulisic. 17 Jahre, 
ganz, ganz großes Talent. Und dieser Christian Pulisic ist seit einem Jahr bei Borussia Dortmunds. Uh, you know what? Fuck the Germans, Mike. What do they know? They capitalize nouns. Let's go back to America, back to Fox, reliable Fox. This is Nicole Dabow of The Buzzer. She is going to be money. I know it. The night before Christian Pulisic became the youngest goal scorer in modern U.S. history with this strike, he did what most kids do at age 17. He attended his high school prom. Oh, no, he, he danced, danced the night away. All right, forget sportscasters. Dancing shoes. <laughs> forget the sportscasters. What about those online robo pronunciation websites? They're pretty authoritative. Christian Pulisic. Christian Pulisic. Christian Pulisic. <laughs> She seems struggling. Middle she's, guy. She's she seems like middle guy. She seems to have some problems. All right, so you got your poo, your puh, your pew, your ick, your itch. Emphasis on the first syllable, emphasis on the second. I am sure there's a clip somewhere of America's soccer savior saying his own name. In the meantime, I'm going to trust the many phonetic spellings in profiles of him and Taylor Twellman of ESPN, who tweeted in March that he asked young Christian how to say his name, and Roger Bennett of the Men in Blazers podcast, who, in addition to being a soccer guy, also has one of those nice European accents. He said the name right before introducing the young player himself. The man we call Tenacious P, the most popular American in Germany since Hasselhoff, the one and only. Mr. Christian Pulisic. Hello, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Christian, we are over. That's it. Pulisic. That is correct. Christian. Just because he didn't get corrected? No. Maybe just the nice kid. I'm going with confirmation. I believe Taylor Twellman. I believe the phonetic spellings in the reliable mainstream media. All right. Very good. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty and Arnold Palmer and Jose Fernandez. And thanks for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.